Hi, I'm Jean Godfrey June, and this is Megan O'Neill. We are the beauty editors at Goop. You're listening to Goop's podcast series, The Beauty Closet, where we talk about all things beauty clean, non toxic beauty, skincare, hair care, body care, self care, and the way we think about beauty both as individuals and in the wider culture. I love when we talk to dermatologists and get all their tips for incredible skin. And today we're talking to the amazing dermatologist, Dr. Michelle Henry, MD, Mount Sinai and Harvard trained dermatologic and Mohs surgeon. Dr. Henry specializes in a lot, aesthetic surgery, high-risk skin cancer treatments, Mohs surgery, of course, and skin of color. She's an award-winning research scientist with a lot of research into melanoma, which, as we know, is on the rise, which is a particular interest of mine because my stepfather died of it. And at the same time, she's got some amazing tips and tricks she uses in her practice to keep her clients looking their best, whether they're looking to age beautifully, have specific concerns around the eyes or the jawline or treating breakouts. She really knows her stuff. She does. And I like the direction we're all going in of tweaking the language around skin to be less of the anti part, whether it's anti-aging or fighting acne. I do too. A little more self-acceptance is a little more in reality, I think. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it's getting cold here in New York where we are, and I've totally started adjusting my skincare routine to sort of winterize it. So basically I'm just doing like more oils, more more moisturizing is what it comes down to. So mm. right now I'm doing I'm doing an oil cleanser in the morning and I like the one from Tata Harper or the one from Wonder Valley. Both of those are amazing. I apply them on dry skin, give myself a little face massage. And then I do Goop Glow Vitamin C Serum, which is my favorite. You really notice a, mm-hmm. a brighter glow in, in like a few days even. And then I do either Goop Jeans Face Cream or Vintner's Daughter Oil, or I do them both together. I layer the cream over the oil on days when I'm just like lizard skin dry. <laughs> and then <laughs> and then I do sunscreen a few times a week. And I actually, I love what Dr. Henry says about sunscreen when we get to that. But anyway, the whole point is to be super moisturizing and try to make my skin look like dewy summer skin in the dead of winter. What are you you doing right now? Oh my God, I'm doing the same. It's so cold today. Like I I cannot get warm. Me neither. um, (laughs) I, yeah, I definitely, it's about more moisturizing. My skin is really dry. So mm-hmm. I also don't cleanse in the morning. I cleanse at night with the, the same Tata you use. But I wow. in the morning, for I think for, for anybody whose skin, who's a little dry, unless your skin is dirty overnight for some reason, like washing it is just going to dry it out further, even, even with oil. I just go straight in with the vitamin C from Goop Glow, the yeah. serum that you mix. The same thing you do. I, do, I think it makes such a difference. I think mm-hmm. everybody I've said on this podcast, everybody should use vitamin C in the morning. So I do that. I wait a couple minutes to to let it sink in and do its thing. And then I've been trying, everybody always debates, you know, is it oil first or or moisturizer first? Uh And I switch back and forth. And a lot of people keep telling me it's supposed to be first the moisturizer, then the oil, which I just don't even know if I agree with. I've been trying it. I've been going the other way. So I put on the Goop Jeans moisturizer is amazing because it's really thick. It's perfect for this time of year, especially. And it sinks right in. At the moment, the oil I'm obsessed with is from Fortuna. It's a new brand. Everything is made in Sicily. It's all organic. And it smells so good and feels so good. I'm telling you this oil, it is amazing. And it's just, (laughs) it's one of those things that you're like, oh, I just want to put that again on again so I can smell it. So Uh, that's kind of, and then if I go out, I put on sunscreen and I'll put it on the backs of my hands, especially even because I have big windows and stuff. So Dr. Henry kind of reminded me (laughs) about how important it is. So the sunscreen I'll put on, I'll put on either organic pharmacy SPF 30, which is my favorite. It just sinks right in. But for face, I love Beauty Counter Dew Skin, which is a tinted moisturizer. So you get like a little skin smoothing action. People always compliment my skin when I wear that. So if I'm going out, especially, or if I just need to look decent on Zoom, I will definitely go for some uh, some Dew Skin. And then the, the only other thing is that if like I have a really like big meeting or I want to look really nice for something. I do think moisture, especially at this time of year, really makes a huge difference. And so um, I will do 
the Goop Jeans eye cream also, and then do under my eyes with the Jillian Dempsey vibrating roller. Definitely before you put on any makeup, I feel like it pushes everything in and it just firms and makes you look your best for sure. Yeah. Cool. I, I love hearing your evolved routine. <laughs> like, because <laughs> it changes like ever so slightly. I feel like both of us do. Ever True. Time. That is the thing about being a beauty editor is you, uh, you get to, you get to experiment and thus evolve. <laughs> okay. Should we get to Dr. Henry? Dr. Henry, we are so excited to have you today. I want to just start with like how you decided to become a dermatologist. Were you interested in skin or medicine in general? How did that interest develop? So my entire life, I knew that I was going to be a physician. So my mom was a nurse and she took me to take your daughter to work day. And I just, I was fascinated with the physician. It was a female surgeon. I clung to her the entire day (laughs) and I just decided I wanted to, to be a physician. That was it. Throughout my life, I didn't quite know exactly what I was going to do. I know I'm technically inclined, so I'm kind of good with my hands. I like to create. I've always been that way. When I was about eight years old, my great aunt, who is actually like a grandmother to me, she had breast cancer and she passed. Mm. But the last six months of her life, she had tremendous foresight. She kind of prepared me for life. So we talked about everything about who I would date, how to find a mate to my career. And so at that point, we decided that I was going to be a breast cancer surgeon. And from that point on, I decided that was it. I was going to cure cancer. And then I got to medical school and my very first mentor was a Mohs surgeon. So Mohs surgery is a type of skin cancer surgery. I love the fact that A, I'm curing cancer. I'm talking to the patient. There's this reconstructive artistic element because after you remove the cancer, you then have to reconstruct the area and make it look normal and beautiful. And I loved everything about it. So she told me, well, if you love this, this is actually a subset of dermatology. You have to love dermatology. So as soon as I can get myself into a dermatology rotation, I did that and that was it. So early on, I decided it was for me because it really met everything that I desired. It was technical. It was aesthetic. It was medical. It's infectious disease. It's adults. It's kids. And as dermatologists, we tend to have really long careers because really you can make your career, whatever you like, you know, you can be completely medical Mm. or completely aesthetic. And it really just kind of met my curiosity and all the things that I loved. And that was it for me. Wow. Amazing. And what do you get asked the most by patients? Oh, it's funny. It depends on what day of the week it is. So (laughs) on Mondays, I do a lot of skin cancer surgery. I actually go out to Staten Island where they're in many ways, there's a shortage of skin cancer dermatologists out there. So I do a lot of cases. So the biggest question there is, please keep me beautiful (laughs) after the (laughs) cancer. Will I look the same? Will I look normal? And then in the city where I do a lot more like general dermatology and aesthetic procedures, I guess the questions are, everyone, there's a lot of anxiety. How will I look? What are the risks or the sorts of questions? Keep me natural is probably one of the biggest questions. They always say, I came to you because I want to look natural. How little can we do? Like, you know, how can we keep this looking really natural? Those are the kind of conversations that I have. That makes sense. If a patient comes in and says that they want to look better, more rested, natural, as you say, but they Mm -hmm. aren't specifying particularly what they want. Mm-hmm. Where do you start? Like, how do you address that without saying, oh, well, obviously it's your under eyes are the problem. Yeah. I, n- I never do that because they look at themselves in the mirror every day. I don't. Right. So I want to see what, what their concern is and what I fixate on may not be a concern to them. So I always start by handing them a mirror. And I just really want to hear when you wake up in the morning, what, what do you fixate on? What is it that bugs you when you're passing a mirror in the hallway? What is it that you look twice at? So I want to see what they're fixating on and see how do I fix that? Okay. And when you're doing Botox or filler, which I'm sure you you do a lot, how do you ensure you're making someone look just as natural when her face is still as when it's in motion? I have them animate while I'm injecting them sometimes. I make sure that they smile in the before, after, before and after. Things change and aging is a dynamic process and your muscles, the fat, gravity all plays a role into what makes you you. So I make sure right. I have them animate as I'm assessing them. That's really important. I have them animate while I'm injecting to see where it's landing, how it looks, how it feels. Product choice is also really important. Gone are the days when I first started, we had a handful of fillers and it was Mm -hmm. kind of like a a one size fits all approach. We have this tool, we use it everywhere, but we're in a much better place now. We have more nuanced tools. So we have fillers that have been created to look more natural, fillers that have been created to put into either deep or superficial tissue. We have fillers that are meant to go away 
more quickly, fillers that are meant to last a little bit longer. We understand all the properties of these fillers down to a very molecular level and the physics of these fillers. And we call it uh, the rheology. So like how it flows and what that means. And so a firm understanding of that really gives us more opportunities to keep it really natural because our faces are not these static things are really dynamic. And so you really have to think about that at each and every step of your treatment to get a really natural result. Eyes seem to show the most age or the first certainly or the and what are your favorite techniques for crow's feet under eye bags under eye circles droopy eyes the way i I address the under eye area is first i ask myself why is this area dark why is it puffy so dark circles that's a huge one and there's so many reasons why under eyes can look pretty dark part of it could be you're just dark there part of it could be just like ethnic and genetic there's some groups that tend to have darker circles under the eyes you can inherit it from your parents it could be hyperpigmentation do you have eczema or asthma or any of those things that cause you to have to rub that area or have more inflammation in that area and that area becomes hyper pigmented. Is it dark because with birthdays, we start to lose some of that nice juicy fat that keeps us looking young. (laughs) It's like the one area we don't want to lose fat, we start to lose fat in. And so as we lose that fat underneath the eye, it gets more hollow. And so now that it's hollow, it's more that skin is thin and almost translucent in some people. And now you can see the vessels below and those vessels are dark. So is it looking dark because that skin is thin and hollow now? Is it because you have this puffiness there that's making you look more tired? Well, I want to assess exactly what the problem is. And then I pick my favorite solution. If it's just pigment and it's dark, then I will use a number of topical treatments. Sometimes I will compound special face creams for the under eye area. And I usually have them use my compound for a few months to really knock out that pigment. And then we'll give them something over the counter to maintain. If it's because you are, or sometimes I do chemical peels in the area. Sometimes I do lasers under the eyes. It all depends on like how deep the pigment is, how resistant it is. If it's due to the fact that it's now become hollow because we're losing that good juicy fat, then we fill it because filler is there to replace lost volume. And it's a good question you asked initially about how do you keep it looking natural? Fillers around the eye, that's a really critical area. If you pick the wrong product, you can look awful. (laughs) So it's really important. Yeah, it's so important to pick the right product around the eye. So making sure you're picking soft products under the eye, products that don't hold a lot of water so that you don't look have that bloated under eye look that we've all seen and we I don't think anyone loves. Yeah, so making sure that we do that. And then sometimes you're not a candidate for filler. Sometimes you you might need a surgical approach and it depends on the dynamics of the area. Is it that you have huge fat pads or is it that you really just need to get rid of some excess skin? And so uh, there's not one favorite approach and that's, yeah. that's, kind of, that's kind of the beauty of dermatology is we have this nice toolkit and we can use things based on what the patient needs. But that's kind of my approach is like figuring out why you have these dark circles and it's absolutely not a one size fits all approach. That's why it's really important to have this conversation and figure out what your issue is. And then we kind of tailor it from there. What about crow's feet? For crow's feet, if you have really pronounced crow's feet, then the answer to me is is almost always a neurotoxin. So neurotoxin mm. is like my go-to for crow's feet. That's kind of one of the earliest places that we age around the eyes. And one of the earliest signs that we see are the crow's feet. We can start seeing crow's feet start to peak out even in our like mid-20s, sometimes even earlier, depending on the person and their kind of genetics and their sun exposure and whatnot. That's one place where it's, it's it can almost it's feel like the one size fits all. Yeah, it's a, it's a neurotoxin for that area. People start to lose their, like, as they get older, if they've been using a neurotoxin, I've heard that it can stop working. And now anecdotally, we'll say I have patients that like with time, you have to use a little bit more. And is it because they are actually building up resistance to the product? We're not quite sure. Some people don't believe that we create true antibodies to it and some do, you know, so it's an area of still active research. Some people believe we create these antibodies, but that the antibodies don't actually neutralize. And some believe that they actually do. In my office, I have seen with time that some patients require a little bit more. And sometimes requiring a little bit more is a, it looks like it's a reflection of the fact that they're just aging and you're Mm -hmm. older and now you need more. But sometimes it's not that they're just aging. I am interested and I, I wouldn't be surprised if in some people that they do reduce their response to it, but it's not something that is kind of like widespread that happens with everyone. But I think that 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 could be the case in some patients. 
interesting what you said about chemical peels can help because I'm not at filler yet yeah. or peel I can get down with for under eye circles. That that sounds well, good. yeah, for dark, yeah, for for that's for pigment. If it's really for just pigment. that you're just okay. dark and you have like hyperpigmentation there, they can help. But what I love about chemical peels is that they help to stimulate collagen. So really, they're going to help with anything because if we can make that skin thicker and more robust, that entire eye area is just going to look better and more rejuvenated. So right. yeah, it can help with both. Oh, that that's cool. What about the jawline and around the mouth? Because lips seem sort of tricky. Like yeah. how, how do you avoid that done look around lips? It's about really precise filler placement. So when I'm injecting lips, the line of the lip, we call that the vermilion of the lip. So that outer line where we put our lip liner, that area is sacrosanct to me. Like I do not pass it. <laughs> so when yeah. you pass that, when you pass that area, that's when it bleeds into what we call the cutaneous upper lip, that lip above that area. And that's when it gets heavy. That's when you get that duck look. That's when you get having a bulk there is just not a natural appearance. That's not, that's not something we see typically in nature. That's very artificial. Anyone can pick up on the fact that's artificial. So I really, the approach I use is I inject the lip and I create these little fine columns to lift the area and kind of create a nice natural little cliff at that vermilion without bulking up that area. So it really is technique dependent and product dependent. Some products hold more water than others. And what you want on the lip around the lip is you want a sharp line. You don't want a bulky thick line. We want nice, soft, beautiful, pillowy lips, but that's why product choice is so important in making sure you have the right technique. Yeah. Okay. Cool. You specialize in so many areas, aesthetics, <laughs> as you mentioned, the Mohs, yeah. the cancer treatments, and skin of color. Is mm-hmm. skin of color something a doctor needs to specialize in? Are there super different needs in terms of white, lighter type skin types and darker skin types? In many ways, yes. We're all the same biologically, right? <laughs> yeah. Like it's a, like the differences are, are, are small. There are some enzymes that certain ethnic backgrounds might have more often than others. But especially in aesthetics, culture is so important. And mm-hmm. understanding what, what people need and what they what they consider to be beautiful. And especially aesthetics is probably one of those areas. Of course, there are other specialties in medicine where we we should always think about ethnicity and cultural background and all of those things, because that's a part of treating the whole patient. But I think it's it's particularly at the forefront in aesthetics because we are using energy devices where pigment actually matters. (laughs) So it's like one of the few areas where, you know, if I use a laser on someone with type one Caucasian skin and someone with type six dark deep mahogany skin, I'm going to have a different outcome. And oftentimes those lasers are much more dangerous in darker skin types because lasers work because they're targeting pigment. But what happens if your skin is packed with pigment? The laser's confused. And so it can't get to its target. So what do you get? You get a burn. And so that's why we see so many folks of color with burns is because either people don't understand that the laser gets confused because instead of having one target that's in a specific area in the skin, it sees a target everywhere and it's treating everywhere. And then you get this burn. And so like laser surgery and skin of color is advanced laser surgery. And really only folks who have done a lot of these cases and understand how to read the skin should be doing this. But it's not something you can't teach. So I serve on the diversity inclusion board for a lot of our major aesthetic companies. And cool. so it's an it's an active conversation. And what I love about a lot of the boards is that, of course, you have women of color like me, but you also have white women, you have white men, you have all sorts of people. And that's what it's about. It's that everyone should feel equipped to have this conversation. And so it's not just our doctors of color, everyone, that it's not a taboo thing. I can understand I'm a physician of color, so it's very easy for me to bring it up, but I can understand not being a physician of color and feeling nervous. You don't want to sound ignorant. You don't want to be offensive. And that's why it has to be a kind of an active conversation for everyone. That's the first step. But is it different? Yeah, it's different because pigment matters. It's different because culture matters. One needs to understand that, for instance, on the lips. So often in women of color and black women, the lip ratio could be one to one. So the upper lip and the lower lip could be really close in size. That's not the beauty aesthetic for non-black lips or non-East Asian lips. That's not the aesthetic. So if you have a black patient in your office and you're applying these golden ratios that have been drilled into our heads to a black patient, you're not serving them, right? Because that's not necessarily their aesthetic and their anatomy may not allow for it in that way. And so those kinds of things are important. And so, yes, it's important that we understand patients of color, that we're comfortable with talking about it because it's different and nuanced in ways, especially in aesthetics. Right. 
Okay, and what about that famous phrase, black don't crack? <laughs> and, it's and a lie, fake news. Is there anything behind it at all? Because does black skin and skin of color, does it age differently than lighter skin type? Yeah, so so the black don't crack, yeah. So it comes from the place that like in black skin or in darker skin types, you're not going to get photo aging as readily. So the crack often is the fine lines and wrinkles, that etching we get from excess sun exposure. So we see that our Caucasian patients are going to to photo age 10 years earlier than darker skin patients. 10, right? wow. so, Yeah, it's, ten, it's a 10 year difference. But the difference is it doesn't mean that patients of color aren't aging, they're just aging differently. So when I look at my Caucasian patients, Caucasian patients are wrinklers. They're wrinklers, whereas mm-hmm. my darker skin patients are saggers. So they're wrinklers and saggers is how I kind of categorize them. And so we're just doing this differently. So there are certain things about, for instance, a lot of black patients, and of course, Black patients aren't a monolith. White patients aren't a monolith. They're all different. But it's because, like, for instance, like in the mid face on, if one was to say, if one was to stereotype a face of African descent, the mid face, that middle cheek tends to be more sunken. So because of that, there's not as much volume. And so we're going to notice sagging maybe a little bit sooner than, let's say, maybe a Caucasian face that maybe doesn't have that mid face slight sunkenness. And so there are some anatomical differences that change the way we age. Okay. So black doesn't crack, it sags. It, yeah. I always say yeah. it doesn't crack, but it sags, it dulls and it fades. Right. So like I, <laughs> because there's a lot of pressure. I have patients that come in, black patients that are like, well, I know that black doesn't crack, but my black is cracking. And it's, and then they like feel guilty. They're like, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a failure I'm not- to like black people. I don't know. And it's just oh not true. God. So get rid of the guilt. Like we all age, we just age differently. And and let's yeah. just figure out how to make ourselves our best selves, whatever your ethnic background is. Uh, <laughs> a very good sentiment. Is it true? Do all lasers work with pigment? I know lasers are used for all different kinds of things. And I I think of some things like lasers, something like Thermage or Elthera. And I don't know mm-hmm. if that's even technically a laser, but does mm-hmm. that cause the same amount of problems as something that's like supposed to take away pigment from sun damage or something? Do you have to use different lasers for different skin types? Yeah, you're absolutely right. So something like Thermage, Thermage is radio frequency and radio frequency is actually colorblind. It works differently from those lasers that are like particular wavelengths that are focusing on pigment. All therapy, it's also ultrasound is also colorblind. So those are other good devices that we use creatively so that we can do more robust treatments on patients of color. And those they, are anti-sagging things too, right? Those are anti-sagging <laughs> things. Yeah. So they're attacking collagen. So that those are great ones. Other devices that I love, I use um, radio frequency and microneedling. So they're these laser devices that have needles that enter the skin. And then after the needle enters the skin, it releases the radio frequency. So you're getting that radio frequency Whoa. right where you want it. Those are my absolute favorite. I use them for everyone. I use them for and lighter skin for tightening, for darker skin for tightening. I use them for acne scars. That is a workhorse in, in my office because we can apply it to all skin types and we can max out the energy being less afraid of causing hyperpigmentation. So yeah, we're in a good, it's a good time to be alive. We have lots of lasers <laughs> that are that are colorblind. And then we have certain wavelengths that are like longer. So we have, if you look at like laser hair removal, the laser you'll always see for skin of color is a 1064 laser. And so why mm. is that the case? 1064 is a long wavelength. If you compare it to a 532, which is half as long, if it's longer then it's bypassing all that melanin at the top of the skin, that's confusing the laser. And so these longer wow. wave, yeah, these longer wavelength lasers that penetrate are better for darker skin types. So these are all the things that you need to know when you're approaching these patients. But yeah, so we have lots of workarounds nowadays. So that's, it's a good time. Cool. What about the best in-office treatments for lifting and tightening skin? I know what the micro current with laser you like for lifting, but yeah, some of my favorites is I love the L therapy laser. I love the thermage is also good depending on the areas. So those are probably some of my lasers that I like. There's a new device on the market, Softwave, which has some, it's radio frequency as well, which has some good data and some good good results. There are some other lasers that you're going to see that are going to be more invasive. They're called like Body Tight is one of them that actually goes underneath the skin to tighten. If you, look at video, if you look at videos of it, it's fantastic. Is it painful? Cool. Well, you're numb. Yeah, right. Yeah. We infuse like a dilute numbing solution to make sure the skin's numb. But yeah, it's we have for a the lot body of or it's for uh, the. It, there, there's one for the body. There's also face tight for the face. 
but the same sort of technology that, you know, is tightening from underneath the skin and, and using these kind of radio frequency, like colorblind technology to really tighten the skin. Technology is just getting smarter and smarter. So yeah, we're doing really well. So much so that we're even pushing back when people are getting facelifts nowadays. Technology has gotten so good. Our ability to tighten skin with lasers or fillers or biostimulatory fillers has gotten so good that now the average age for facelift is actually getting pushed back a little bit because we're able to maintain with a lot of these minimally invasive treatments and procedures. Wow. That's pretty amazing. Do you have people come in who are like, well, I'm going to get a facelift and then they end up not, or is everyone sort of already has that in their mind and they're coming to a dermatologist to sort of avoid that. Yeah. Sometimes I have patients that come in and they resign themselves to the fact that they have to have a facelift and they're sad because they don't want to have surgery yet. So they're like coming to me in the final hour, like, is there anything more that we can do? And some patients are just surgical candidates and there's not a lot more that we can do, but there are a lot of patients that we can. And so I've had a number of patients that I've been able to kind of keep them from maybe having a facelift yet in life if they're not quite ready or for whatever reason they can't have surgery or don't want to have surgery. We have some really great tools. What is the most important thing we all need to know about protecting against skin cancer? The most important thing is sunscreen, sunscreen, sunscreen. (laughs) (laughs) Making sure that you get your annual skin checks. Everyone, no matter your skin type, you should be wearing SPF 30 every time you go outside and SPF 50 if you're outside for more than an hour. Having a good comprehensive sun safe regimen or practice is not just sunscreen alone. It's all about just making good decisions. So trying to stay indoors during the peak of sunlight, using shade structures, wearing a wide brim hat in addition to your sunscreen when you're outside. You need to have a comprehensive plan to keep your skin safe. Understanding your genetics, so knowing if you have a history of skin cancer, knowing if you have a history of melanoma, all those things are really important. And then of course, seeing your dermatologist, doing your, your skin checks at home, because we're doing annual visits, but let's say I check you in November and your skin cancer pops up in December. We don't want to wait a year for you yeah. before you see me again, right? Right. And so what we do recommend is that you do self-skin checks at home and that you're doing that. I recommend my patients do it monthly and I tell them to do things like utilize technology. We all have cell phones. Take a photo of a mole if you think there's something that's new. Take baseline photos of yourself and just have them. That like way if it. something... Yeah. If something pops up, we never know. Is this new? I don't know. I haven't looked there in a while. But if you make a practice of just having baseline photos of yourself, you always have your own reference. And you can see it better. I always have someone say, look at this mole. And I'm like, well, I, I, it, it, you know, I can't really without yeah. a microscope. But if you put it out, it took a picture, you can blow it up and look. Exactly. Exactly. It mm-hmm. makes it, it's very useful. Tell me if this is correct, but that more black people statistically die of melanoma than white people who who get it. Is that true? And why is that if that's the case? It, it is true. Less black patients get cancers like melanoma, but the outcomes are significantly worse. And a part of that is under-recognizing it mm. on the part of patients and maybe also on the part of clinicians. Mm-hmm. Um, because when we think of these cancers, we don't always think of it in, in folks of color. So it's, it's really important that we, it's a public health issue. We need to make sure that we're educating these patients that it doesn't matter if you have dark skin, you can also have skin cancer. You need to have your checks. These are the areas that you need to look because the outcomes are significantly worse. Right. Mm-hmm. Wearing sunscreen is a big part of prevention, obviously. But mm-hmm. what about what about the studies on how people who are vitamin D deficient are more likely to get COVID? What about sunscreen in that respect? Yeah. You- so you know what? Sunscreen, especially in where you live, like I in the Northeast, you're likely not, even if you're not wearing sunscreen, you're likely not getting enough vitamin D from your sun exposure. Mm-hmm. We're indoors, we're commuting. And so what I recommend is not, not just solely depending on the sun to get your vitamin D. I recommend that everyone take a multivitamin, especially if you're not living like on the equator, <laughs> getting yeah. tons of sun. I usually recommend that people um, make sure that they also supplement and that's for everyone. Right. So we definitely don't want a low vitamin D can lead to a whole a wide range of things independent of potentially increasing your risk for COVID in terms of your bone health. There's so many other things that we need our vitamin D for. And I wouldn't just bet on the sun. I would make sure that we also are taking multivitamin or taking a vitamin D supplement to make sure and checking your vitamin D levels to make sure they're appropriate. So I wouldn't just hang my head on the sun alone. And I think that we also know that UV light is a known carcinogen. And so it's it, yeah. if there is a healthy way to get your vitamin D, I'm not necessarily sure that it's worth risking potential skin cancer. We have many healthy, easy ways to get a little bit more vitamin D in our bodies. 
You also treat hair loss, which we get a lot of questions about. What's the most effective way to tackle that, particularly in women? And are the results lasting? The first question, as as with all things, my question is always, what is the cause of your hair loss? Because there are so many types yeah. of hair loss. So the most common is female pattern hair loss and male pattern hair loss. So those are the most common types of hair loss. They're genetic. They're essentially, you inherit sensitivity to your own male hormone. I mean, it is this male hormone that causes you to kind of lose hair, right? And so some of the treatments that we'll do, for instance, we'll give spironolactone. Spironolactone was originally in a blood pressure medication, but the way it works, it blocks those receptors that your skin needs to interact with your male hormone. So when we take spironolactone, a number of things happen. We get improvement in our hair and our hair quality, less acne, exactly, and we get less chin hair. So it's kind of like the beauty pill. A lot of my model patients are like, please give me spironolactone because it does all of those things. And so that's one type of hair loss, but of course we want to assess it. And the reason it's important to assess your hair loss is because there are a lot of types of hair loss that are scarring. And if you have a scarring hair loss, that means it's a permanent hair loss. And our medications are really better at stopping it from progressing than bringing back the hair once you have a scar. And so if you're having any tenderness, discomfort, you're losing hair in like patterns like the center of your scalp, that's a really common one, especially for women of color. There's a type of scarring hair loss called CCCA, which is central centrifugal circuitricial alopecia. Long words. Whoa. <laughs> Um, in dermatology, we have long words. I think it makes us feel very smart, but it's just central starting in the center of the scalp, centrifugal meaning growing from the center outwards, circuitricial just meaning scarring. And then the word alopecia is just medical speak for hair loss. That's a really, it's a scarring type of hair loss. So to me, that's a hair emergency. There's another type mm. of hair loss called frontal fibrosing alopecia. And just as it's described, it's on the frontal scalp. It's fibrosing, meaning scarring, and then alopecia, again, medical speak for hair loss. And women lose this band of hair across the front of their scalp. That Mm. is also a hair emergency because it's scarring. And so, again, scars are very hard to treat, stopping it from scarring much easier. And so the first step when you're noticing hair loss is to come and let us evaluate it. Because if you're in that category where it could be one of those hair emergencies, this is a critical time where we can stop it with oral medications or injectable medications. There's a wide range of things that we can do to try to stop it. Now, if we see you and it's just female pattern hair loss and female pattern hair loss is again, one of the most common types of hair loss. That's kind of like routine. We all know someone, we all probably struggle with a degree of it. It's so common, right? Mm -hmm. Then we'd evaluate you and we start from things as simple as like trying some supplements, trying over-the-counter things like minoxidil or Rogaine, or there are a number of other things if one is opposed to that, to using more complex custom compounds that I'll create in the office, to using oral medication. So there we have a, to using things like red light. So I have a lot of my patients that are like naturalistas and they don't want to do anything and we'll do things like red light or PRP. So PRP, yeah, PRP is super popular. It's platelet rich plasma. And essentially what we're doing is we're drawing your blood, we're spinning out your platelets. The platelets are rich reservoir of growth factors. We activate them so they dump out their growth factors and then we inject that into the scalp. And so the way I explain it to my patients, if you have a cut on your arm, the first cells that go there are the platelets. They help to stop the bleeding and they dump out their growth factors and they tell the body to stimulate itself. So they're kind of like helping with the regeneration. And so mm. we're trying to like harness their their that that skill that they have and put it in the scalp to get new healthy, more robust follicles. So PRP is a really, really popular one, especially for those who may be opposed to taking like oral medications or or injectable medications or medications in general, because PRP PRP is all you. Right. And so it gives us a nice natural approach to get some hair. We also use it aesthetically. We've all heard of the vampire facial, Mm -hmm. I think. So we use it on the skin as well to rejuvenate the skin. And so it's something that's just becoming more and more popular. And as we learn more about it, we're, we're finding and having larger scale studies on PRP where we're learning ways to optimize it and ways to just squeeze more benefit out of the technique. It's an exciting area. Wow. We did that cool. on the Goop Lab, actually. Mm-hmm. Oh, you guys. Oh, she had it? Yeah, yeah she had it on, the, on one of the episodes. Did she like it? Or she did, did she have it? She did. Yeah. She loves glow. Don't we all? <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Henry, just to go back, because you were talking about how spirolactone helps acne. And mm-hmm. I feel like we have to talk about acne for a second because it's such a yes. huge issue for so many people. Isn't it something like 60 million American adults have acne? Yeah, yeah, it's pro- pro- yeah, absolutely. The statistic is probably larger than that, honestly. What are the most effective ways to treat acne in office and at home? 
first thing that I like to do, I subscribe to, of course, first do no harm. So I'm always doing the least invasive, safest treatments first. So I usually start out with topical treatments and it can range from anything from as simple as an over-the-counter salicylic acid and benzoyl peroxide to glycolic acid. Glycolic acid can help somewhat and it's a little bit drying than, less drying than salicylic acid. So adult Mm. acne tends to be a little bit less oily. So glycolic acid is also a humectant, meaning it draws in water. So if you're someone who's like super sensitive, it may be a good option for you. Retinol and retinoids, which help to increase skin turnover and exfoliate the skin. And of course, you can't forget about things like your cleansers and having a a really robust topical regimen, which is so important as well. And then in the office, I use things like topical as like acid, which is kind of like a natural acid that does help with acne and also helps with pigment. So if you have a little bit of scarring, it's nice for that. If I need to, I'll use topical antibiotics. And then of course, a workhorse is topical retinol, a retinoid rather, which is, I just have to, have to, have to use it. I mean, personally, I use it, I'm acne prone. I use it twice a day, every day. And if I don't- Twice a day, wow. Yeah, my skin is it's tough. <laughs> if I don't use it, I, I break out. I feel like I break out in 12 hours if I skip it. It's that predictable. And then if I can't, then I graduate to using oral medications. We use some oral antibiotics. We're trying not to use them as much anymore because we don't want to build up antibiotic resistance. But for a short period of time, they work very well and they're very safe. We'll use spironolactone. We'll use more aggressive medications if we have to. And then we also use some lasers. So I have a lot of my patients who also may not want to use oral medications. They may not want to use topicals. There's a laser I use. It's called the Aerolace laser, safe for all skin types. Really impressive job at treating acne. It's one of my favorites. So I'll treat acne with that. Or and somebody who is pregnant could use that, right? Um, you know, yes, I always clear these things with their OB because a part of it is like, what is a theoretical risk? But I also think about the psychological risk. You're carrying this precious cargo and God forbid something was to happen. I don't want my patients to have any guilt or feel that they didn't do every single thing they possibly could to have kept this baby safe. So I'm probably more conservative than most. So yeah, light energy is basically very, very low risk if anything, but I still clear these things with my OB colleagues and oftentimes they'll clear it. And if it's really everything's a a risk benefit and if it's really troubling the patient i've had had cases where we've used it and they've done well but it's a conversation for like your dermatologist your ob and also as an individual considering both the theoretical risk and the psychological (laughs) risk in doing anything cool this is for acne but also aging how much do you think diet affects skin disease like acne or the process of aging i think it can now, if someone has just really aggressive acne and like nothing's treating it and it's everywhere, I don't think that's going to be com- completely diet, right? But I do mm-hmm. think that diet can play a role. When someone comes in and they're like, every time I eat a bar of chocolate, I break out. What do you think? Yeah. I think, that, I think that every time you eat a bar of chocolate, you break out. I agree with you. It is likely that chocolate is participating. We know that a lot of these empty carbohydrates and sugars that we all enjoy, especially during times like this, can push our insulin and can cause a cascade of hormones, which can make our pores stickier and lead to acne. So yes, they can contribute. So all the foods that we should not be eating for our overall health also contribute to acne, which is convenient. So it's a nice yeah. way to convince people to eat a healthy diet, well-rounded diet. But yes, diet can play a role. We know things like dairy can be quite inflammatory. We know foods like salmon and avocado are that have those nice omega-3s and those nice healthy fats are naturally anti-inflammatory. So th- that's kind of my guidance for the person who's, I just feel like when I'm eating, I break out. I believe my patients. You're watching yourself every day. Mm-hmm. And if you're picking up on patterns, I listen to your patterns and I help them guide me. And so if someone's telling me they notice that, then we try to adjust their diet to see if it plays a role. Does it always help? Not always, but sometimes it does. Cool. So at Goop, we like to talk about aging as something we're lucky enough to be able to do as opposed to Mm -hmm. making it all about erasing wrinkles. How do you feel about the term anti-aging and how do you approach what it means in your practice? So my approach to aging, it's like, like you said, aging is a gift and it's not if we age, hopefully we all age. It's just how you age. So how do you age well in all things, mentally, Mm -hmm. physically, emotionally, we all should age well if we are lucky enough to age. And that's kind of my process. It's about being your best self at any age, right? So how do you age well for who you are, whatever stage you are? And that's not about anti-aging. It's just about aging in a way that feels good. And that makes sure the outside of you reflects how you feel on the inside. If you're feeling healthy, the 
outside should also look healthy. And that's kind of my approach to it. I would never, if I had a patient that was 50 and said, I want to look 20, then we'd have a, a really realistic conversation <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> about what that means. And also how that expectation is not realistic. So it's all about just like pro-aging and how do you age in a way that's healthy and reflects how you feel and makes you feel confident in every space that you um, walk into. Do you have two or three favorite over-the-counter skincare ingredients that you think great for skin that people can use, whether it's for something for acne, something for wrinkles, whatever it is? Yes. So some of my favorite ingredients, of course, I have to say sunscreen. And I'm Mm -hmm. just going to say, I guess, zinc and titanium dioxide if I'm going to list ingredients. And then if I have to use retinol over the counter or retinoids, Mm -hmm. because now you can get adapalene over the counter, which is a prescription strength retinoid. That is like my, when people ask me, what is your desert island ingredient? It's always retinoid for me. It's just one of the most transformative ingredients we have in dermatology. So it's just such a powerful ingredient. So that is a must have. Glycolic acid. So for those who can't tolerate retinoids, I'd like like acid because it's exfoliative and shedding those dead skin cells is going to help to improve your glow. It's going to help to unclog any pores that you might have. And again, glycolic acid is a humectant, so it's not going to be as drying as some of the other ingredients. So I really love glycolic acid. For acne, for those who can tolerate it, I love salicylic acid as well. So salicylic Mm. acid is also another great ingredient for those who can tolerate it. Cool. What about probiotic skincare? And or maybe the bigger question is, what about the skin microbiome? Yeah, I think I I love the skin skin microbiome is becoming a more active conversation because just like our gut, our skin is a, a living microbiome. We have good bacteria, we have bad bacteria, and balance is so critical to all things. And so those good bacteria help to fight the bad bacteria like P. acne's which can contribute to acne. Mm. And so a lot of these products that either have true probiotics or they have prebiotics, which help to encourage that healthy microbiome, it's like food for them, are important. Because if we can do that and kind of help to establish that balance, especially for someone who maybe can't tolerate the harsh the harsher ingredients. They're too sensitive. They can't tolerate the retinol or the salicylic acid. It's nice to have that also in our toolkit as a kind of more natural way to attain balance on the skin and reduce the power of some of that bad bacteria in creating acne. Going back to the the SPF question when when you were talking about mineral ingredients as being your primary thing, my question about that is chemical sunscreen ingredients. Do you see patients getting irritation from that? Is that the reason that you're into the mineral or... Um, You know, I I still use chemical sunscreen. I think chemical sunscreen can be great. There are ingredients that we stay away from, like the octanoxate or oxybenzone, for multiple reasons. There's this concern that they could be hormone disruptors. Of course, that's an area of active research still. Even if you can't hang your hat on that, we know that they also disturb our coral reefs. So that's another reason to just stay away from them. And we have other ingredients that are fantastic, so we don't have to use them. A lot of companies are getting rid of them. So like I've been working with a, a lot with also like CVS and they, because they have a lot of things that align with me. They have this campaign called Beauty Unaltered. So when I work with them, I'm not allowed to like filter photos or not that I do that. Yeah. And again, of course we've all used a filter before, but Mm -hmm. I'm against grossly altering what is real because I we're creating psychologically these really poor expectations for young women. But I love that they have that campaign. They also have a campaign where they're really wed to the idea of like sensitive, friendly, safe ingredients. And so they've removed what they call O&O, the octanoxate and the oxybenzone from all their products. Yeah. So it's really, I think it is important for all of us to be really smart consumers, but I also think that we also don't want to be like paranoid, terrified consumers, right? Mm -hmm. So when we have evidence, we should follow the evidence. I try to stay away from those two ingredients, but mineral sunscreens are becoming more elegant. So we can can micronize them. We can tint them. We can do all of these things. And if we can do that with ingredients that are like inert, that we're not absorbing, that we know aren't going to cause any problems, why not only use that? Right. So I think we're getting to a place where we may really be able to just only use mineral sunscreens. For me, I have dark skin and I can find fantastic mineral sunscreens that look really good on me. So I use primarily mineral sunscreens. I'm not poo-pooing chemical sunscreens. I think they have a place. I think they could be extraordinarily safe. But if you're someone who's remotely concerned, we have really great mineral options that are that work good or elegant and keep you safe. Obviously, we could keep you here all night asking mm-hmm. questions because uh-huh. they're amazing. But last question. Mm-hmm. Are there any upcoming dermatological tech or treatments that you're really excited about? Ew, there are lots of goodies coming out. We have lots of new injectables that are coming out. Some that we're actually 
doing studies on in my office that I can't say the name yet, but they are Mm. exciting and we have new indications and they're just like you said, how do you keep someone looking natural? You keep them natural with a lot of these new products that we're having because they're just made to work in a moving face. They're not made Mm. to work in a dynamic and I mean a static face. So lots of interesting injectables, lots of interesting neurotoxins coming out. So those are like muscle relaxers, some that last a little bit longer than others, which is really, really cool too. Lots of good lasers coming out that are like smarter and faster. So like, especially with skin of color, part of the problem is that the laser creates the heat and that heat stays there and that bulk heating causes a burn. We're having more and more lasers that move so rapidly throughout the skin that there's no time to build up the heat. So there's wow. less of a less of a likelihood to get burns. So that's exciting. Yeah, lots of good body contouring devices, some great ones coming out on the market that are going to disrupt the market a little bit. And I actually think probably disrupt Ooh. pricing, which will make things cool. more accessible to everyone, which is fantastic, right? If it's less expensive for physicians to get, we can pass that savings on to patients and there's more competition in the market. That's that's good for patients as well. So there are lots of good devices and things on the market. So I think that the next few years are going to be fantastic for like medical aesthetics because there's lots of interest in the space and lots of investment and lots of goodies coming. Oh. So exciting. I'd be happy to. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for taking the time, sacrificing your lunch. No, no, no. It's okay. It's my pleasure. I've been excited about this all day. So thank you guys. This has been great. Oh, thank you. So that was incredible. I love talking to her. Yeah. You know what I love? I love that things like the quote unquote lip ratio, like ideals of beauty based on a particular race are going away. And it's amazing that they're only just now going away. It it is amazing. Yeah. I love what you said about how there's no golden rule for like that ratio. But that there used to be a very specific one. And that just amazes me because, you know, you kind of think most people want like (laughs) beautiful lush lips. They wouldn't like right. be like, oh, well, this part needs to be a little smaller just so it fits this ratio. Like I would think right. it just, I do love that they're sort of waking up to that. It does seem a little on the late side. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it does. But it's, yeah, I just, I like how she said it because it, it just makes, it makes you think like, whoa, that is antiquated yeah. that we weren't thinking about it that way. Yeah, it just, yeah, we base it on this particular group of people or whatever. Yeah, like imagine if I, which I I don't plan on doing and don't want to do, but if I went in for like a lip enhancing treatment and like they made my top lip skinny (laughs) and my bottom lip, how how messed up would I look? I mean, I'm always like afraid of lip work on anyone, but I do, I do, a lot of people have said, and it's true that, that you only notice the, the bad work you know mm-hmm. in that department you, you only notice the people that have overdone it and that is yeah. you know I guess part of the problem with all plastic surgery is is you know you sort of assume the people who look like they haven't done it haven't done it <laughs> right that was also cool what she said about how the the age of people getting facelifts is going up like they're getting older and older yeah. That's interesting because people are getting more non-invasive treatments. Yeah. I mean, it definitely, certainly when we talk to plastic surgeons, even like Dr. Julius Few, who's been on this podcast, the amazing, he talks about how he's able to put it off for, you know, more than 10 years for most people with combination of lasers and stacking stacking treatments. treatments. You know, there's all the, there's lasers, there's fillers, there's neurotoxins, there's, you know, all different kinds of and skincare skincare getting better too right that that people aren't having to to do these I mean we say having to and we really shouldn't put it that way it's not have to (laughs) it's also I saw there was a piece on Candace Bergen in the times like on Sunday and she was talking about how like you know she's like I should do this and I should do that and I just don't want to Uh, yeah it's just I don't know. There's so much like it. All these things like hurt, and life's like hard enough. <laughs> it's know. true. I mean, it's no, all like you know a balance. Like certainly, you know, nobody would say 
coloring your hair is a delightful experience, you know, and like, so things that people do for beauty tend to involve not always pure pleasure. And, you know, to judge one and not judge another, I I think. No, that's true. And I'll eat my words because I'm queen of Brazilian bikini waxes. Oh my God. That's really like, you know, so much pain. Okay. I've had natural childbirth twice. And I still think that the most painful thing is Brazilian. Yes, I do. No, yes, come I on. That's worse I did than it giving once. birth. I was like, I'm never oh my doing God. that again. I mean, it is it is horrible. <laughs> like it's torture. Like it actually is torture. Oh my God. <laughs> Beauty. <laughs> so on the site, I do a column called Megan Tries It, and you do one called Ask Jean, and we get a whole bunch of beauty questions. And we're gonna answer them all here, right now. <laughs> Yes. So should we get into today's Ask Me Anythings or maybe Ask Us Anything? Yes. And if anyone's listening and has a question they want us to answer here, just send it over to Goop on Instagram or Facebook. It could be about self-tanner, crow's feet, dry shampoo, parabens, our favorite bath soak, non-toxic lube. Or anything else. Now to today's question. Okay. This question is from Casey G. And she says, I just started using face oils about six months ago because I read that moisturizers just sit on top of the skin and clog your pores and don't deliver any benefit to your skin other than just helping it feel moisturized. Is this true? Okay, so so no, it's not true, but there is something to this because a lot of conventional moisturizers that are made with mineral oils and, and have the texturizers in them to make them feel a certain way, they do sit on top of your skin and and can and do clog your pores and don't really actually have a real moisturizing benefit. But clean moisturizers, that's not true because they don't, they contain concentrations of botanical ingredients and, and plant butters and oils, and they do sink into your skin really beautifully and they can really be really That's replenishing. True, but also, I mean, but, there are conventional moisturizers that sink into your skin for sure. It's just moisturizers that contain mineral oil that will clog your pores because mineral oil clogs your pores. Yeah. And okay. So then the, the other part of the question about face oils, I mean, face oils are face oils are really incredible. And also you, you have to remember that they've been around for like, you know, a billion years, not a billion years, but but forever. So whenever something has been around and and used on in multiple cultures across the earth for that long, like I, I trust that. Yeah, for sure. And, and also when you, in when you have a, a face oil that you love and a clean moisturizer you love, like the one from the new one from Goop Jeans is amazing. Mm-hmm. It sort of it sinks right in. It's rich, but not too rich. It's just beautiful. You can use it as a night oil. It's it's great. And when my skin is super, super dry, like in the dead of winter, I'll do face cream, then I'll layer a face oil on top just for some extra, extra gleam and I do hydration. that too. I mean, I do that all the time. I, I kind of alternate through the day yeah. just because we're home, you know. <laughs> so I'm like, totally, yeah. I have like a face oil in my, in, in my kitchen, then over by my computer, I've got a face cream. So it's kind of like, oh, I'm over here. I might as well do that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's oh, nice. Good. Yeah, I, I do the same. But yeah, I think... There's nothing wrong with something that just moisturizes, but certainly if you tend to break out or have any kind of like skin sensitivity issues, you're not going to want to use something that could potentially clog your pores like mineral oil. Thanks again for joining us on The Beauty Closet. You can learn more about our new podcast series at goop.com slash beautyclosetpodcast. If you're liking what you're hearing, please rate and review the podcast and share it with a friend. 